Welcome back to the Dealmakers Podcast Show with serial entrepreneur Alejandro Cremades, best-selling author of The Art of Startup Fundraising and co-founder at Panthera Advisors. In this podcast, we ask our guests about their successful acquisitions and financing rounds. Hey guys, so just a quick overview here on Panthera Advisors, as I think it might be of value to you. So Panthera Advisors exist in order to help founders that are in the process of raising capital or get their company acquired. I actually started the company out of incredible frustration because during my entrepreneurial journey, which involved building, financing, scaling, and exiting companies, I could not find a resource that was founder-friendly and I could not get the type of support that I was seeking. So as a result, I made a ton of mistakes along the way. So if you're looking to raise capital, or you are looking to get your company acquired, or just need some sound financial planning, and you're looking to get the best possible outcome in the shortest period of time, feel free to learn more by visiting us at pantheraadvisors.com, or just reach out directly and shoot me a note at alejandro at pantheraadvisors.com. Alrighty, hello everyone and welcome to the Deal Maker Show. So uh, today on the show we're going to have someone that I think we're going to be learning quite a bit from batteries. Uh, he was one of the early employees at Tesla and now he's building a unicorn startup. So I guess without further ado, I'd like to welcome him on the show, Gene Berdichevsky. Welcome today. Yeah, thanks. thanks for having me, Alejandro. So, Gene, originally from the Ukraine, you were born in the Ukraine and then you were raised in Russia. So how were those years uh, growing up? Yeah, they were great. Um, I, I bounced around a little bit, um, Ukraine on, on the Black Sea, uh, and then spent actually five years of my life north of the Arctic Circle in, uh, in Murmansk uh, and a few more years in St. Petersburg. And then when I was nine, my family, uh, my family came to the States. Um, but it was a great time when I was a kid there. And where in the states did you guys uh, relocate? We landed in in Richmond, Virginia, uh, and so I, I uh, we lived there. I lived there through high school, and then uh, came out to Stanford for for my undergrad studies. Got it. And Richmond is uh, quite beautiful. Was this like maybe like uh, your parents were teaching, or what? What would you say drove the the move? Yeah, you know they. Um, my dad's also an entrepreneur, and, and he had some small businesses uh, that that he built there. Uh, and then uh, they 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 both became uh, became software engineers. Um, back in Russia, they were um, uh, nuclear submarine engineers. And then when they came here, they 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 both became software engineers. And and um, yeah, it's a beautiful place, you know, uh, in Richmond. And and we grew up in I grew up in a little suburb there, um, sort of much like many suburbs around the country. I think. So so engineering. At what point do you start developing this love for solving problems? You know, it's funny. I, when I went to Stanford, I think the one thing my parents really wanted me to do was be a software engineer. And so the one thing I knew I definitely wasn't going to do is be a software engineer. Okay. Um, and, uh, and, and so, uh, but, but I did, I did enjoy math and science a lot. And so I really looked around and, um, and, and thought, what is, what is the broadest uh, kind of engineering I could do? And mechanical engineering seemed to be it. Um, I didn't know exactly what, what I wanted to do afterwards. And then also within kind of my first year there, um, I stumbled on on this project, the solar car project, where uh, students would build a a solar powered car and race it across the country 
and I joined that team and and my freshman and sophomore year we built a car that we raced 2300 miles from um from Chicago to LA uh powered by uh the same power of a that a toaster would have about 1500 watts um we we ran it on freeways uh and and so I I sort of fell in love with energy and problem solving and building uh, we it was um, we built a carbon fiber body. We built the chassis from scratch. You know, one of our friends was the driver, so we really sort of um, built something from the ground up that that uh, we were willing to put one of our friends in to drive. Wow, I mean that seems quite a risk to <laughs> to put him to drive there. But but let me ask you this, uh, Gene: What is the difference between because I see that you did mechanical and energy engineering? So what is the difference between one another? Oh, so when when um, for my undergrad, I did mechanical engineering, and then when I went back to to do my master's, uh, I I really uh, at that point knew what topics I wanted to work on, uh, which were all around energy. And uh, Stanford lets you get a master's in in engineering without necessarily a a, a a specific type of engineering. And so I put together my own curriculum to to look at materials and. Uh, semiconductor physics and quantum mechanics and um, solar and, and all all the sort of aspects that are related to, to to the broader energy technologies and and studied that sort of made up my own my own curriculum. And you know one one thing that is very interesting about Stanford and and I guess about education as a whole is that now you can find like any content you know if you want to learn you can just go online and learn it but there is one thing on on or one reason why you go to one of those places is because of the network right and 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 basically what what you're able to see and and get contagious you know perhaps with it and and i've seen that you know some of the best entrepreneurs uh, are actually coming from stanford so so what makes stanford so magical yeah, I think you you bump into people while you're there. Uh, that's really powerful. Uh, many of those people work with uh, with me here at Sela today, um, so those relationships are incredibly powerful. You also just get to learn from one another. So you're not just learning from uh, the educators. Where, where you're right, you can get a lot of coursework online, but you're also learning from one another. Um, and you know, for me, it was also I, I was able to. I worked at another startup while I was uh, in school, so I was in school full time, working full time. It's it's so you can you can uh, do quite a lot, and and uh, that network is is very very powerful for sure. Um, you know, some people also learn differently. I I enjoyed uh, sort of the 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 more structured environment. It was helpful, um, but I think uh, a lot of it is definitely learning from your peers. Yeah, I agree. I agree with that. So, so between the uh, doing the mechanical engineering and and your masters uh, in energy engineering, as you were pointing to, you did um, you were one of the first employees uh, in this little company at the time called Tesla. So you were the seventh employee. Is that right? Yeah, I. I um, so, so as I mentioned, I, I built solar cars as a as an undergrad, and I fell in love with energy and and uh, you know. I worked on the batteries uh, in that, and a couple actually at the end of my junior year, at the end of my third year at Stanford, uh, one of the alums uh, from the solar car project uh, was looking for uh, some some engineers to join a little uh, electric car company uh, no one had ever heard of at the time, and I basically went and begged my way into a job there, uh, dropped out of dropped out of my undergrad. Um, and, and and was able to to join basically saying look i i i know what an electric car looks like i 
built one as an undergrad. Uh, I've, I've done some battery work before. I can help you guys figure this out. And, and I did that for about four years. I, I ended up leading the battery system uh, architecture development um, in the early days. I was the, the tech lead for that system. Um, and it was an incredible experience seeing this, um, seeing this, this, uh, the birth of this car company. Very cool, very cool, and I believe that that you were um, you were critical for for solving one of the early challenges. What was that challenge? Yeah, we had uh, we had a lot of early challenges. We we, we started with literally super gluing uh, laptop batteries together to make the battery pack. So there was a lot to be built uh, between that and what's what is the most sophisticated battery system today. Um, and, and but one of the really big issues was. Um, you needed to make sure that the cells were safe. Uh, safety was, of course, the biggest concern. And uh, we had to develop a, a system that, um, where even if a random failure of a battery caused it to, to, to spontaneously go into runaway, that it would not propagate to any neighboring cells or, any, or, or the rest of the pack. Um, that was one of the biggest technical challenges. Uh, you know, you can, you can have manufacturing defects that happen in, in batteries quite randomly, um, you know, at a can be one parts per billion, uh, but you can't have that uh, catch the whole pack on fire. And so that was a big, big challenge we solved. Um, we also solved big challenges around how to interconnect. Uh, we were using uh, almost 10,000 batteries for the pack. So how do you interconnect all of that reliably and robustly? Um, so there, there, was, there were plenty of challenges. It was, it was a lot of fun. And what kind of growth did you see the company experience for those four years that you were there from being employee seven to when you were leaving four years after? Yeah, we went from, there was a couple other people that started the same day I did. So, it was, you know, we went from about 10 folks uh, um, when I showed up to about 300 uh, folks when I left. Uh, so about a 30x growth. And it's definitely, it, there was an incredible amount of um, positive lessons to learn from that that, that we've applied here at Sila, um, building a company that has a, a culture of kind of self-reliance and, and the willingness to, to design and build uh, whatever it takes uh, to, to get the job done and solve the problem yourselves. Got it. So was, uh, was Elon Musk uh, at the time, because I know he was one of the early investors there, and then he became the, the actual leader of the company. So were you able to, to see him around? Uh, he was a, around a little bit. He, at that time, w like you said, was a was an investor. He uh, he backed almost the entirety of the Series A. Uh, he was really the only person that that believed this wasn't a, uh, from an investment standpoint. The only person that believed this wasn't a terrible idea. All of Sandhill rejected the company, um, but he was he was really a board member at the time that I was there. Uh, he was becoming more present right around when I was leaving. So we interacted a little bit, but primarily the company was that first couple hundred people was really recruited and, and that company, um, uh, structure and culture was built out by Martin Eberhardt and, uh, and other folks like, like JB Straubel, who's, you know, who's still there. Um, so there were the, the leadership, uh, at the management level was, uh, were other folks at that time. Got it. So, so I guess. You know, from the from the exposure that you had, you know, with someone like Elon Musk, that uh, you know, people are 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 really labeling him as as one of the best entrepreneurs, you know, of our, of our era, right? It's a it's it's pretty interesting here. I mean, I would love to hear your views, and you know, perhaps if there's any any learnings that you got from someone like him. Yeah, I, I think 
you can it's really embodied in the company uh and and how he thinks about it but also how martin thought about it how jb thought about it um is you you want to go after really big problems and i think what what i've learned is you actually it, it's sometimes easier to solve a really big problem i don't know if it's technically easier but but organizationally it's easier to solve a really big problem than sort of a medium or a mediocre problem um, you attract incredible talent. So the mission was so audacious and so ambitious that you really wanted the best people in the world wanted to work on it. Um, you know, uh, you, you're able to, to also stand alone. There's not a lot of people that are trying to do what the kinds of things that, 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 you know, Elon's trying to do. Um, so going after big problems, uh, is both incredibly rewarding, attracts the best people and reduces competition. And I, I think that's a lesson that, that a lot of entrepreneurs uh, can learn is, is make sure you're solving something that's really, really big and worth solving. And, and that's, that's a good one uh, from, from a leader like, like Elon and, and what you guys were doing at Tesla. And I guess from your four years of experience, being able to see a company grow so quickly uh, and, you know, you're probably looking now and you're like, wow, I can't believe, you know, it has, it is where it is today. I guess, I guess from your experience for this, from these four years, like what would be your main takeaway from your experience with Tesla? Yeah. So, you know, I think the thing we just talked about of making sure you're going big, but then the other, the other piece, the maybe more tactical piece is, um, when you're doing things no one else in the world has done, or the world doesn't think are possible or good ideas, which was the case, uh, for Tesla, uh, you know, at the time, you really need to build a culture where it's incredibly self-reliant. And what I mean by that is you're willing to, to, to do a lot of things in house. You're willing to do a lot of things yourselves. Um, there were other electric car companies at the time that also raised a lot of money, but they relied on outside vendors to innovate for them. They relied on outside vendors for the motors, the controllers, the battery systems, and ultimately that, that failed. And, and so I think when you're doing something new to the world, uh, you, you have to, be willing to, to do it yourself. And if you're not, it's just, it's not going to work. Uh, you you know, you, so you have to be able to build it yourself and that doesn't mean you always build it yourself, but you have to be able to, uh, and that's something that, that we've, we've taken, uh, to heart here, uh, at SILA as well. It's probably one of the biggest lessons I, I, I took away from, from my time at Tesla. Got it, and we'll talk about Scylla in just um, in just a minute. So, so why did you decide to leave Tesla? You know, it's uh, interestingly kind of from the day I walked in, my my brain was already fixed on how do I start my own company, uh, how do I build something like this, um, and and you know, funny story in 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 my 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 junior year at Stanford, I actually wrote a business plan that was for making electric cars for the U.S. market. Um, you know, and, and, uh, and so I kind of knew the idea behind Tesla even before I ever heard of it. Uh, and so part of me was like, huh, you know, it's, this is, uh, how, how do I get to, to, to build something like this myself? And so I was learning the whole time I was there. That was the key is, is to absorb and learn. And, um, and, and so kind of four years in, we had launched the Roadster and, uh, after launching the Roadster, you know, I felt like a certain sense of we'd, we'd accomplished a mission that we were after. There was another one on the horizon, the, the Model S. And I really needed to decide whether I wanted to dedicate the next sort of five years of my life to that next mission or to go try to take what I'd learned and and go try to build, uh, build you know, build the next Tesla, if you will. 
And, and so I, I opted for the latter. I went, you know, uh, down the path of trying to build my own. Got it. And so then you went to, to you do Stanford, you know, which is what we were pointing to. And then after that, you join Sutter Hill Ventures as the entrepreneur in residence. So, so what does an entrepreneur in residence do? Yeah. I'm, um, it's a very odd, uh, title that means a lot of things to, to, at a lot of places, but I'll give you a description of my experience. So I actually, um, one thing I had done is saved, uh, saved sort of every penny I could in order to have a year of free time in order to think about the right business to start or work on, on starting, uh, the right business. I think, um, you know, the story of somebody thinking about, uh, building a company kind of in the nights and weekends while working a full-time job is, um, uh, is a little bit of a myth. It actually takes a lot of work and time to plan uh, to start a uh, to start a business that, that 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 can be successful. And so I somehow I I got the notion that you need a time to do that. So I'd saved a lot of money to to have a year to start something. And I was very fortunate. I met um, a venture capitalist uh, who's a partner at Sutter Hill, and you know I told him my plan. I was going to uh, spend a year uh, look for ideas. Um, and, and then get going on an energy related business. And he said, well, why don't you come here? And, you know, we'll even, um, we'll even, you know, pay you, a, a, a nominal amount, um, and hang out and, and learn from learn, learn and, and, and try to start a company. And if, uh, if it's a, you know, if it's a company that we're interested in investing, you'll give us a chance to invest. And so I signed up for that. Uh, that was a pretty good deal as far as I was concerned. And I, yeah. I basically went around the world and, and met people from all over, um, who had different technical ideas, uh, and try to evaluate whether they would make good, good business sense and whether they would have a big impact on this energy space. And about a year in, I met, um, I met, uh, one of my co-founders, uh, uh, professor Glebushin at Georgia tech. And, uh, and he had technology that, that made a lot of sense to form a business around. And, and so we partnered up and, um, recruited our third co-founder and, and got going. So it was really a year of learning how to apply that venture capital lens, uh, what makes for a good VC investment uh, to energy. Because at that time, if you remember, a huge amount of energy-related companies had just failed, uh, you know, cylinders of the day. There were quite a lot of companies that had raised, you know, a billion dollars plus and ended up in zero. So the investment community was generally pretty scared. And, and I, I, I wanted to understand why those were such bad bets. Because uh, it was clear that they were bad bets, and uh, and I, I think I got a sense of that, and and was able to to start something that um, you know ha has been very investable by the got venture it. community. So you were pointing to that the venture capital lens. So what does the venture capital lens look like, and how is that lens used to identify certain patterns on companies that are potential success? Yeah, so I think one key thing to recognize is that it's different for different venture capitalists. So you really, what you want to do is understand who the right uh, financiers for your business are, um, because different folks apply a different lens, and there are multiple, multiple very successful, very valid lenses. So I'll, I'll kind of speak to the one that I understand the best, which is the one that you know I would I'd say is practiced at Sutter Hill and and companies like Matrix, who who are also investors from the beginning. And, and Bessemer. Um, and I think that that lens looks like you find a great market um, and a great market has to be defined by, by in, to, to make it really simple. It's maybe if, if you build a 
uh, a very strong product that you'll have uh, good uh, straightforward access to distribution of that product um, and get paid for the value your product creates so you don't want to be in a position where someone else is capturing the value for something great you're doing uh, and you don't want to be in a position where it's really really hard to sell uh, your product um, and 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 then from there you find uh, an incredibly talented team uh, and and I was able to do so with, with my co-founders uh, that are the best equipped to solving some very very technical product uh, sorry very very technical problem that unlocks the key to this great product so it's all about finding a product uh, idea that is um, the limitation is some incredibly hard technical problem and and again the nice thing about really really hard technical problems is there's usually very few people in the world that solve it at any one time and so you get a huge advantage and if you're in a good market uh, if you're in a good market position, you have fast access to distribution, you have fast access to, to, to sales, uh, or very good lock-in if you're the first. Um, and so that's the lens that, that we were, I was looking at for, uh, uh across energy, because I, I, you know, you can use that lens on a lot of different uh, things, but, but I wanted to work in energy and, 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 um, and ultimately that, that's how, that's how we, we, we came to start this company. Got it. And obviously during this process, I mean, when you were, as the entrepreneur in residence at Suited Hill Ventures, you already knew that, as you were pointing to that, you were going to launch your own thing. So you were incubating already the idea, you know, for for Scylla Nanotechnologies for some time. So eventually you came across, you know, the second co-founder. And I want to understand what was that process for the two of you to understand that there was a match? And then what made you believe that it, it was there was a need to recruit a third co-founder? And how did you do this? Yeah. Uh, so, so I think I, you know, to, to be to be very honest, I wasn't actually incubating the idea for Sila so much as I just I knew I wanted to start a business and I had this lens, and so I was okay. really looking at different different very different things. Everything from you know um, electric powertrains for for cars to to autonomous or semi autonomous driving and uh, all kinds of really interesting things back in 2011. Uh, and, and so when I met, uh, Gleb, who's the, uh, professor at Georgia tech that, that, that's one of my co-founders and our CTO, um, you know, first of all, I think the personal interactions really matter a lot. So we just hit it off very easily. Um, he happens to also be a Russian immigrant. Um, so we, you know, there was some connection just on a, on a human level. We, we, we've gone through some of the same experiences in life and, um, and, uh, and as we, you know, what, what I saw was a technology that was still pretty raw in an academic setting with good intellectual property and uh, an individual who also really wanted to build a business. So some, some professors would much prefer to sort of cast their patents out into the world and go back to uh, a, a life of academia. But what, uh, what I saw with Gleb is a desire to uh, make an impact with his, uh, with his work and a willingness to really contribute to that. So he's still very engaged with the company, um, you know, in, and uh, um, and, and has a part, partial appointment at, at Georgia Tech, continues to be a professor there. Um, and so that was really important for uh, for me. And then as, as we started to look at how we would build this business, um, you know, there's a very uh, uh, tactical thing we had to decide of where to put the company. And at the time, uh, 
Glebb was still relatively new to Georgia Tech, so he had he hadn't quite gotten his tenure. And so he couldn't spend a lot of time in California. And so we made the decision that I would move to Atlanta, uh, where where he was based, and we would start the company there and uh, uh, and then move it back to California when uh, when we had raised our Series B, uh, which is exactly what happened. Uh, and then as far as the decision to, to you know, recruit a, a third, you know, I, I think one of the challenges is, um, and maybe one of the... And, Things I've thought about that, that your listeners might find interesting is there's a lot of technology that is far and beyond Silicon Valley, uh, sort of locked up as a maybe too strong a word, but locked up in academia, um, in universities around the country. But there's not a lot of entrepreneurial talent in those places uh, that just hasn't formed the kind of culture that Silicon Valley has. And so I really wanted to make sure we brought enough uh, entrepreneurship to Atlanta to be able to attract the kind of uh, engineers we wanted to attract. And so um, Alex, who I had worked with at, at Tesla as our third co-founder, um, is also one of the best engineers I'd ever worked with uh, and, and have ever worked with. And, uh, you know, we, we called him up and said, hey, do you want to do this? Do you want to move to Atlanta? And, and he went along. And then he and I were able to recruit a bunch of other incredibly talented engineers uh, to do the same. Got it. Got it. So then... What was the process of bringing Scylla te- nanotechnologies to life? What was that process like? Um, slow. <laughs> um, well, <laughs> from the time from the time we we met, um, I met the professor. It was maybe springtime, and and I think we have uh, financed the company in September, so maybe maybe four or five months. Um, one of the big things we had to do was license the technology from Georgia Tech. And um, licensing negotiations can often be long. It was actually a, a pretty good one. Uh, we we we, we um, it went fairly fast. Some of those sometimes those things can take twelve months, but it took us maybe three months. And and then we we um, we also went out and, and found a, a, a co lead for our Series A. So Sutter Hill was was willing to to fund half of our Series A, and and then um, uh, Matrix Partners uh, co led, um, and they they've been fantastic partner along the way as well. Um, both of those firms have continued to invest in every round of financing that we've done. Um, so we, we went out and, and, you know, did, did our, did our pitch tour, um, found great partners. Uh, and, and then, you know, we just started with a thousand square foot lab in a basement of Georgia tech, uh, and, and went from there. So you guys actually, uh, when you had the idea, you went out and and you just went at it right away to raise the money. Is that is that how you did it? Yeah, because it, for us, uh, Gleb had a half dozen patents uh, uh, already that Georgia Tech uh, owned, and 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 we took a license to. And he had you know four or five years of technical development in his lab, so we were able to use that uh, technical data. Uh, as as well as the market story and our team story to to raise that that uh, five million dollars Series A, um, you know, as essentially you could think of he had been incubating it for for four years by that point uh, the technology, um, and, and and so yeah we went we went you know we, we knew exactly the kind of business we wanted to build we knew we wanted to build a materials business uh, that would that would uh, with a technology that um, would be fully compatible with existing lithium-ion battery manufacturing. So our, our, our product is a, is a new chemistry that drops into those factories. And, uh, and so because we, we, sort of, we knew the market, I knew the market quite well from my Tesla days. Um, we knew how 
uh, these kind of materials are, are manufactured uh, today. We didn't know how to make the, the, the type of thing we're making today. Um, uh, but we had the technology base and, and we, we went from there. So, I mean, being so early, what, what, what would you say that was the expectation that was met from the investors to, for them to click and say, okay, we're going to make the investment? So I think a, a couple of pieces. One is unique, you know, proprietary technology. Uh, we had the license from Georgia Tech on some on on six patents and uh, gloves ideas, and and those are things that no one else in the world had access to. Um, the the business positioning was was critical. So we um, a lot of people have lost a lot of money investing in batteries, and we were very clear from day one: we are not building a battery company. We're building a technology company uh, that makes materials for batteries, and and that positioning was really important because. Um, Batteries themselves are fairly uh, low margin, hard to compete in business, but the materials that go into them are actually uh, have, have a very healthy market and uh, are performance differentiated. The better your product, uh, the, the higher the, the sales price can be. And so we, we, we had uh, technology that would allow us our product to become the best in the world. And, uh, and that was proprietary to us. And we had a team that, that I think investors looked at and said, yeah, these are the right kind of people to, to go solve this incredibly hard technical problem of, of a breakthrough uh, battery chemistry. And, you know, I, I think the specifics of the technology evolved as we, as we went on and on. And I think even the early investors understood and knew that was going to happen. So they were really looking for market, uh, market and, and the kind of team you have to attack that market and, and positioning within that market. So then what, what ended up being the business model so that the listeners get it? Yeah, so, so we, we've, you know, we've never pivoted away from that. The business model is to uh, invent, develop, manufacture, uh, and then sell this uh, material, which is a powder. So uh, our, our product um, is, is, a, a graph, uh, is, a, is, is a powder that replaces graphite powder in existing lithium-ion batteries. And so I'll maybe just spend 30 seconds here to, 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 to give a basics about the lithium-ion battery you sure. have in your phone or your, that you're listening to this on or, or, or laptop, um, it has really f two main components. It has an anode which stores lithium when the battery is charged and a cathode that stores uh, lithium when the battery is discharged. And the more efficiently you can store the lithium, meaning the less material you need and the smaller volume it takes uh, to store the lithium, the more energy you can store in a given volume and weight. And so what we do is we, the anode material in today's lithium-ion battery is, is all graphite, and ours is a silicon-based material that, that, we've, uh, that we synthesize at a, at a, um, using proprietary processes. And so you take out the, the graphite anode and you replace it with ours, and ours takes a lot less volume and, and a lot less weight. It's about two, half the volume, uh, of a quarter of the weight of that one component. And so by doing that, the whole battery... Uh, is able to store about 20% more energy uh, in the same volume or for the same weight. Um, the, the other components are sort of holding back our technology a little bit, but um, the industry has been improving kind of 1%, 2% per year, and, and we're able to make this 20% uh, leap with, with our material. And, and, from, as a, and so as a business, we are going to be building ever larger factories to produce this, this, um, uh, this material, this, this silicon-based anode product and we'll be shipping it to uh, battery manufacturers and, and then one one important thing about our business is we don't just sell to the battery manufacturers we actually go 
beyond the battery manufacturers and we think about who's the user of that battery, uh, who's, who's buying the battery. And so um, our, our latest round of financing was led by Daimler. And essentially, we, uh, the, the idea is that we're able to um, form a partnership with the car company or the consumer device company that will use our technology, that'll have access to our technology first to make their products better. Uh, so they'll, be, they'll have access to batteries with our materials um, uh, before anyone else. And so they'll have um, vehicles that, that can go, let's say, 20% longer uh, distance than anyone else's uh, first. Got it. And obviously, for an operation of this nature, I mean, just like you were pointing to, um, you guys went and, and raised money early on. Uh, it seems that, obviously, capital intensive. Um, so how much capital have you guys uh, raised in total? Yeah, it's a very capital intensive business. Um, it's, we've raised about $295 million so far, 170 of that coming just a few months ago. Um, but the, the, the interesting thing is it's a lot less capital intensive than, than the battery industry itself. So it takes us uh, dramatically yeah. less um, capital to build a plant to make our material. And so that's really the key. Um, but, but it will, you know, the, the scale of this technology, there's about every electric vehicle will use about 15 to 20 kilos of this material. And so if you think for two decades, let's say, and every new car is electric, about 100 million cars per year. Uh, you're really talking about 20 kilos per car. You're talking about 2 billion kilos of this entirely new to the world material that has to be produced. So uh, the scale is also very, very yeah. large. Absolutely. And and I believe the valuation of, of the amount that you guys have raised, that has been confirmed as well by the company? Yeah, that's right. We're, um, we, we've confirmed it's over a billion dollars. Wow. Did you ever uh, know when you decided that you were going to build a company one day that it was going to be a billion dollar plus company? You know, I, I think, <laughs> I think every entrepreneur always carries two, two, two diametrically opposed views in their mind. One is that, of course I knew. Of course this was, <laughs> and of course this was exactly right. how it was going to go. Yeah. And at the same time, you know, every single day, you are paranoid about all the ways that this is all not going to work. And so yeah. I, I, you know, I, I, I think I'd be lying if I said I, I knew this was how it was going to go. But, but there was always a part of me that, that this is still just the beginning. This is still the first step. This is the first inning of, of the electric vehicle revolution that's going to happen over the next couple of decades. So, um, you know, we're still, we're still a very, very young company in the, in the grand scheme of things. And, uh, and, and yet at the same time, you can think of all the ways that it, it could not work. <laughs> and, and great investors too, Bessemer, Matrix, Sutter Hill Ventures, 8VC, so, so great, great people. And, and one thing that, that you were pointing to here, Gene, that I, that I thought it was really interesting is, uh, I mean, obviously, the, the, the journey of being an entrepreneur is not such thing as a, as a straight line. I mean, you were kind of like alluding to this. And, and there is some moments, I mean, there's a lot of moments where you have to endure the, the ups and downs of the journey. Uh, is there in this point, or I would say in this journey, uh, since you guys started the business, you know, back in 2011, what would you say, uh, uh, perhaps from a, a professional and then a personal perspective, has been maybe like a breakdown moment that really served to an incredible breakthrough? 
when you say a, you mean a breakdown like maybe, moment, meaning maybe there's like a moment yeah. that was in this journey, like a little bit tougher or more challenging that maybe opened up like something that, that, that was really magical. Yeah. You know, actually very early on, um, the fundamentals are of what we're trying to achieve. You know, it's a, we're, we were, we started out to solve a science problem and you know, all the physics and chemistry theory in the world basically says, yeah, this should be possible, but there's no guarantee from an engineering perspective that the world has the tools, the ideas, the concepts to make this kind of silicon material work. And so when we're getting started, um, very early on, we, you know, I went through a realization that, hey, this could all, I mean, this was fundamentally a science project, an expensive science project, and it could well have not worked. And so, um, you know, grappling with that, that you, we can work as hard as we, we want. Uh, and, you know, physics and chemistry may be against us, not the market, not things that we can control, but just physics and chemistry. And, and that was a very, um, that was a sort of tough, uh, emotional realization, uh, that our success wasn't entirely in our control. And the, the thing that came out of that, the, the way I sort of solved that in my head was to say, you know, then what we should do and we should, the way we should judge our success is, is how we build the company, the culture we have, the kind of team we have, and whether people come here and believe they've done some of the best work of their lives uh, while they've been here. And, uh, and if that's the case, you know, we can, we can uh, the, 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 you know, as they say, the score will take care of itself. Um, and, and I think we, that led us to instill a, a very different kind of culture um, that is driven by being incredibly rigorous and and diligent in the process of discovery and achievement and not so much just on did you you know you can't do science on a schedule all the time uh most of the time you can't do science on a schedule uh especially at that discovery phase and and so we built a very different kind of culture that i'm very proud of um and it came out of that you know a very dark uh realization that that this would um could all fail for for no reason of our control and I guess culture is is super critical. Culture starts with the founders, and then you know it just takes a life of its own. So, in terms of culture, like what has been your biggest takeaway so far with Sila? It, it, it is set by the early team, and I think that that I learned a lot of that. Um, you know, at, at at my experience at Tesla as well, the early team there is an absolutely incredible collection of people, uh, and I you can see what they've achieved and overcome. Um, and the same thing is true here. And so we were very careful of, of, of how we, we chose the early team and continue to be very careful. It's still the very early team. Um, and then what you really have to do is ask, uh, not what do I think the culture should be, but what is, who have you hired and what are their values? And so we went through a process of iterating on that and discovered that the, 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 what our team believed our culture was, it is going to be your culture. And, and so what, um, what we have is, is, uh, a team that's full of craftsmen, people who just want perfection in their work, incredibly diligent. Um, we have a team of people who just want to keep learning, uh, and discovering new things. And then the last bit that, that really uh, is important for, for me has been that we have a team that's intellectually honest. Uh, and, and that means facing the facts of, of your own fa failures first, um, and, and coming to grips with it and fixing it when that's happened. So, you don't control it as much as you think. You only really control it by by the kind of folks you, you you're able to recruit, and and we've been very fortunate in that. Got it. And talking about 
people and perhaps uh, employees? I mean, what, what kind of uh, a picture can you give us, especially for the listeners, so that they get an understanding of, of how big Scylla uh, Nanotechnologies is today? We're about 130 people today. Um, you know, we're growing. We've been growing 40, 50% every year uh, for five years and uh, don't, don't see that slowing down for, for any time soon. Um, we are we are a manufacturing organization, so we have uh, which we've built out over the last couple of years. So we have, um, you know, we run operations twenty four seven. We also are uh, a science discovery um, uh, company, and so we have an incredible um, uh, variety of of technical folks from chemists and physicists and material scientists and chemical engineers, mechanical engineers double E's software, just everything. So it's, um, it's a very, very broad, uh, very diverse kind of skill set that, that we have. Um, and, uh, we're, we're, we're just getting started. Got it. Really cool. And, and I was saying, actually taking a look now at, uh, at LinkedIn and it says that the two year growth in terms of employees, is like at about 92%. So the question that comes to mind now is as a leader, you know, yourself, Gene, you also need to grow by 92%. You need to grow in parallel. So, so how how have you done that yourself? Um, you know the probably the the key thing that I struggled with when I was an engineer at Tesla, and I struggled with as a as a as a as a CEO here, um, is that you you have to give up parts of your job as the as the organization grows, and you narrow the scope of your role. Um, but it becomes so much more important and so much more, uh, carries so much more weight. And, and so just to kind of give a very concrete example, we got the series a, I would run experiments in the lab. I would run the tools at night. Sometimes, um, I would, you know, I would sort of be right in there and, you know, had to give that up. And as you, as the company continues to grow, you have to give up more and more things that you might love doing, um, and focus on the things that the organization really needs you to be great at. And, and that's top to bottom. So it's true of, you know, early engineers that maybe owned an entire system and now have to be part of a team that of five people that owns a much bigger system. Um, so I, I think that's really, that's been my biggest uh, challenge and uh, also kind of opportunity, I think, for, for growth. And, and then you have to get really good at, 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 at the one or two things that, that you're responsible for. And for me, that's, um, a lot around setting the vision and setting the, the, the goals that we, that we go after the strategy. Uh, and, and of course, uh, you know, in, in ensuring that we, that we can fundraise and, and, and win the trust of the customers. So that's really interesting. So talking about strategy and to follow up on that and, and then giving your background to as an engineer, which is all about, you know, problem solving, how do you go about uh, solving strategic problems? What does the process look like? Um, I think it has to you you have to uh have a combination of of enough people to get different perspectives around the table and some level of decisiveness uh where you're not going to have perfect information and so you have to decide and go at the end so you know for us we 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 try to take a you know big tent approach on get, getting ideas around uh you know for example we're are deep in considerations of of what size factory to build next, where to build it, how to approach that, and there's uh, a ton of different perspectives on on how to how to get to that decision. Um, and you need to listen as a you know as a, a as a leader and as a leadership team, you need to listen to those perspectives and consider them. But you also need to not 
um, expect the answer to just pop out. At some point, you have to uh, uh, be decisive and and go a direction. And and uh, you know, I think you're, um, uh, you could say you're going to be moving faster as long as you're moving forward. And so, at some point, um, you know, the objective becomes really clear when you're moving towards it. And so, you have to pick an objective uh, at the end of the day and and go for it because you're not going to ever get the perfect information. Got it. Got it. Uh, then th what I wanted to ask you here is in a world or I would say, in a, yeah, in a world where the vision of, of Scylla nanotechnologies has been fully realized, what does that look like? We're all driving electric cars, uh, fully electric cars. Um, I, that's, that's really the, the biggest part. Um, you know, at that point, uh, as, as cars will pull battery technology forward, uh, you know, we can also use that, that same battery technology, our battery technology to, um, uh, to make the grid fully renewable, solar, wind, and storage, uh, fundamentally. Uh, and the, the last bit is, is it turns out that the kinds of technologies we work on that make batteries lighter are also really important to making this vision of, uh, of, of, um, of air taxis viable. So you might not only be driving on, on land in an electric car, but you might be flying in an electric plane as well. Wow. So do you think we're very far away from electric planes? I don't think we're, um, so, so no, but that still is, you know, a half decade or, or so yeah. before, before we're regularly using them I, just on the, on the scale of, of, of what it is. It's pretty, pretty, it, it, it's right around the corner. Got it, got it. And how, how have you seen, like, for example, the growth of electric cars? What's your take on that? So, yeah, we, you know, one could say we had good timing, but I think a lot of it was just the belief that this was always, this is how it was going to end up. Uh, from 2011, when we started the company, I think uh, there was less than 100,000 electric cars, maybe less than 10,000 electric cars sold that year. We've seen over 50% year-over-year growth globally uh, to la where last year over over 2 million cars uh, were sold that were plug-in, and that 50% year-over-year growth hasn't slowed down. I think, you know, as a, as a society, we're now all of a sudden recognizing that electric cars are here because they're crossing some kind of um, psychological threshold where we're noticing them all the time. Uh, but the reality is they've been growing 50% year-over-year, and uh, if we can help it, they're not going to stop. Wow. Very cool. So, so one thing that I want to ask you here, Gene, is um, it's a question that I typically ask the founders that that come on the show, and that is, you know, you've been at it since 2011. So obviously, a lot of lessons learned along the way. You know, if you had the opportunity to have a sit down with your younger self, Gene, and you know that younger self that was about to jump from Sutter Hill Ventures to to start Scylla, Right before making that move, what would be that one piece of business advice that you would give to yourself, knowing what you know now? Hmm. Uh, I I think if it was if it was to that specific younger self, um, you know, I I I'd probably tell that younger self to lean in a little more. Uh, I think we were conservative early on, and 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 that's been good. Um, but we could have we could have gone a little bit faster in this journey uh, if we sort of. Um, had had more belief that it was all going to work we were maybe uh a, a little bit too conservative in the early days uh, i think we've 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 gotten more uh aggressive at the pace uh that we're holding um that that you know 
and enjoy the ride. I think that's the other bit. I think at times it's easy to get caught up with the weight of all this paranoia of all the ways that, that things aren't going to work. Um, but I think it's important to continue to enjoy it because if you're going to be doing it for, you know, we, I've been at it now for we're coming up on the company's eighth birthday. Um, you know, you, you, you have to, uh, uh, it can't all be uh, deferred gratification. You have to enjoy the, the journey. Yeah. Yeah. And, and also acknowledge the milestones because in many instances, you know, we're like so in it that it's tough to look back and acknowledge, you know, what you have accomplished. Yeah, that's right. And, and also because as, as entrepreneurs, we're, we're always saying, okay, we, we got here. That's great. But you know, uh, you're, you're always looking four or five years out, you know, so you, you really feel like you're just getting started all the time. Yeah. Yeah. I hear you. I hear you, Gene. So, so for the folks that are listening, what is the best way for them to reach out and say hi? Um, probably just LinkedIn. Um, look me up there. All right. Fantastic. Well, Gene, thank you so much for being on the DealMaker Show today. Yeah. Thanks for having me, Alejandro. Great, great talk to you. If you like the show, make sure that you hit that subscribe button. If you could leave a review as well, that would be fantastic. And if you got any value, either from this episode or from the show itself, Share it with a friend. Perhaps they also appreciate it. So also remember that if you need any help, whether it is with your fundraising efforts or with selling your business, you can reach me at alejandro at pantheraadvisors.com. You've reached the end of another episode of the Dealmakers podcast. For free resources and materials, head over to alejandrocremades.com. Thank you for listening and see you at the next episode.